It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Chris, did I ever tell you about the time that I bailed on um, a single push attempt of the nose of El Capitan? No, I, I never heard this story. I walked right up to the base and I looked up the wall and I saw an objective hazard. It was boot flake. Boot and flake, yeah. I thought, there's no way that I'm climbing underneath something so precarious. And so I made the wise decision to bail on my attempt. That Aren't was you proud it. of me? You didn't set a foot I do, uh, on on the mountain. You just took the you took the uh, the prudent prudent cause to to uh, stay on the ground. That's correct. And um, I think that I should be lauded for my decision making prowess in the climbing mm-hmm. world. Completely, yeah, yeah. Because no one knows how that thing's attached. Exactly. Nobody. It's batshit. Is my theory. Just like fifty tons of glue, like batshit, that's holding that thing there. And ta- excess tape gloves. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, uh, that story is not true, not true, but it illustrates, um, the topic that I want to talk about today, which is, um, objective hazards and then more specifically guiding around them. Uh, mm-hmm. because the story has come into the news in the last couple of weeks. I was in the news about a year ago, but just recently popped into the news again, mm-hmm revolving um a a trip to everest to climb the south side route and the whole expedition was called off because there was this 300 foot house size serac that was uh threatening supposedly threatening the the route do you recall this story yeah it's you know it's kind of the big the big sticking point is that the a client it was actually kind of uh it seemed like sort of a partially guided, partially private trip that that a certain client had been invited on, and the client has decided to sue the operator uh, because they are questioning the decision for the operator to uh, to to scrap the trip over this um, this uh, threatening serac that uh, kind of more guarded the approach. Uh, although it was part of the climb, but it's definitely low down on the climb where you're having to cross these these areas. You know, the Kumbu Ice Falls, the famous one on on the other side, and or was this in the Kumbu? Yes, that, yeah, okay. it was. So, the Serac was actually quite a ways above the mm-hmm. ice fall, but if it cut, then everything in the Kumbu Ice Fall and probably base camp would have been destroyed. Right, and so the I think the crux of this this lawsuit is that. Um, this guy, Zachary Bookman, who's, uh, you know, in, in perfect, uh, in perfect Hollywood script writing form is a dastardly, uh, .com CEO, CEO with some sort of, I mean, very, you know, hard to figure out what exactly he made his money doing, um, in, in that way. Um, Can we just say that he's, he's uh, part of Uber money? Is he Uber money? I don't know. I mean, they all kind of are, right? Yeah. So, but anyway, they they all have like stacks of freaking money and, um, you know, kind of get into this. But anyway, his contention is that this, this, uh, either it was a very poor decision to scrap the trip, um, or that it was actually just an excuse to scrap the trip for that, for other reasons. 
and well, uh, and therefore keep you know keep whatever deposit or, or however much money I think it's in you know sixty grand level of money that that uh, that the operator keeps win or lose when they when they go to climb and climb on uh, the Himalayan peaks. So last year when this story came out, it, this was a mountain hardware trip. The CEO of Mountain Hardware, um, a guy named Joe Vernaccio, uh, was part of the trip as well as one of their athletes, um, Tim Emmett. And at the time, the the story that came out of um, this trip was all of these people went to Everest. They saw the Serac. They decided that this objective hazard was uh, – the, the risk was too high to to justify and um, pull and pulled out. Um, at the time, I I kind of criticized this a little bit because just wondering what the line is between objective hazard that would be you know so high that you'd have to call the trip off versus just the regular objective hazards, which to climb Everest through the Kumbu Icefall involves. The idea that Serac's may or may not cut loose at any time. So whatever that line or calculus that they had used to come up to their up with their conclusion didn't necessarily make the most amount of sense to me. What this news story that's come out in this last week or two, it, it has a different spin on it, which is this um, Uber guy. I don't know if he's from Uber, by the way, but the Silicon Valley guy says that the CEO of uh, Mountain Hardware was basically took one step onto the mountain, decided that this was like too scary and he wasn't in shape and not fit enough. Couldn't could like barely it, it makes it sound like he was so feeble he could barely crawl out of his tent. And he um, he pulled out, he, he bailed on the trip. And after he bailed, then they kind of used this Serac as cover for the the fact that the CEO of Mountain Hardware decided that he didn't really, his heart wasn't in the, in the game, so to speak. And so that's, that was the interesting uh, twist on, on this strange story. Yeah. And there's some other details in there that like the dot-com guy is accused the, the Sherpas of being, you know, lazy and, and, uh, and surly. And uh, I mean, literally, the quote is something about sitting around smoking cigs and drinking or something like that. And it's instead of like fixing the ice fall the way they were supposed to. So, yeah, so he's got, you know, various pieces of evidence that the that the the um, the trip was sort of ill planned and ill conceived to begin with. And since he had been, it seems, personally invited on the trip, I mean, as a client, nevertheless, um, and, and maybe sold as like, Hey, you're going to get to go on this trip with these two, like really good climbers and guys that aren't going to be a problem. Um, so it seemed like, I think a little bit of a dream gig for, uh, for the, for the dot com guy to get to go on a real climbing trip as a, as a client. Um, but that all sort of fell apart. So, you know, the, the lawsuit on the surface sort of seems like, well, I didn't get the summit, you know, and that's always been this, this weird I mean, I don't care what level you guide. And even when I was guiding, like, you know, if you went out and it rained at 9 a.m. and the day was over, generally the, the, the client still paid, right? And it's all, you know, this act of God kind of thing. And there was no guarantees, but you definitely felt like, you know, you'd sort of ripped them off or like, it, it, it's a tricky, all I'm saying is it's a tricky line with guiding. But with Everest and, you know, 
and the attitude of, of clients of like sort of buying a summit or buying a very good shot at a summit. Um, I think it's always been a weird gray area of like, what does it mean to bail on a trip when people have paid the kind of money that they've paid? So I feel like something like this was almost inevitable and I, I haven't heard of it before. Maybe some things like this have popped up and just gotten, gotten, you know, taken off the map almost immediately. But uh, it seems to me that someone suing a guide over not getting the trip they wanted seems almost inevitable in terms of the amount of money and, and that, that, and, and the kind of interesting attitude that goes with the idea of climbing Everest as a client. I agree. Um, and, but I can't help, but think that there's, if, if his account of these details is accurate and that they're using the Serac as cover for the fact that essentially like the, the main, the main person on this trip just bailed and wasn't capable of doing the, 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 the climb itself, then I'm somewhat sympathetic to him. If I felt that they were just using this as a reason to not go forward, then I would be upset by that. Well, there's two things that I'm not clear on. And, um, you know, there's only been a little bit of reporting on this, so it's hard to get all the details. But the thing I'm not clear on is what difference does it make that that guy didn't want to climb the mountain? Like, adios, see you later. You know, we we can still climb it as a, as three people or even as two people. And, you know, so what the excuse was there is also interesting. But then part of me is like, you know, too bad, so sad. Like, again, you, you, you sign the papers and there's, there's no guarantee. And, and I, I don't, I don't know how like a, a lawsuit or whatever is going to parse out this, this problem of, of a guy's decision. So this when is it comes down to it. So this is what the bookman, the C, the uh, tech, the Silicon Valley guy says, his quote from this article on adventurejournal.com says, on the first acclimatization walk at a base camp, the president of Mountain Hardware fell seriously behind and was obviously struggling. He was like, oh my God, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I'm not going to begrudge him. You know, it's hard. It's really high. But he was obviously not well or not fit or just having trouble. The very next morning, he announces the Mountain Hardware Expedition is canceled. I walk in bleary-eyed, and I'm like, what? It hasn't even started. And the very next day, he flies out. So yeah. he kind of makes it sound like this was his, for some reason, uh, the CEO had the of Mountain Hardware. It was the the guy who pulled all the strings to to end the expedition. Yeah, and I guess, uh, yeah, and I guess I uh, maybe there there was some sort of mix here of private expedition you know, with this guide making a little bit of side money off of this client that got to go. And so maybe when the CEO leaves and, you know, he's not going to, the hardware is not going to foot the bill that pulled the plug on the expedition. But do you know what I mean? I mean, I don't, they're there, they're on their way to acclimatization. The Sherpas are there fixing, you know, it's all in, in place. And so I don't, I guess the machinations of why this guy got to end the expedition for everybody, you know, okay, goodbye. See you later. Like, hike out. Like that happens all the time with clients, with, you know, even private expeditions. Like somebody doesn't, doesn't, you know, get sick on the way in and, and it's not going to climb. So that, that's the part I guess that I'm unclear about it and, and would be, you know, I guess part of book, maybe Bookman's complaint is that like, why did his decision end it for everybody when I've, you know, and, and I think maybe like, again, the mixture of private expedition and guided expedition got a little bit funky right there. 
Well, all of this makes me think that we should start a our own guiding company. Yeah, for sure. 100%. Yeah, I mean, as long as the Serac is still on Everest, I think we could hike people into base camp and then make a very tough and wise decision to not go any further than that. Yeah, I think mean, there are the Seracs. of $60,000 yeah, a person. <laughs> I mean, we could get away with it maybe like two or three times, but that's no, like No, it's not a long-term 000. business plan. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it'd be awesome. Yeah, it'd I be mean- a one-off. Right, right, right. Climb, climb Everest with the run out. <laughs> it's like- just go to obje- our company, Objective Hazard We can cancel our Patreon after one trip. We're good. We got it dialed. We got it dialed. Just like <laughs> we could just we could be smoking cigarettes and drinking with the Sherpas. I mean, that sounds like a blast right there. I mean, that would happen regardless. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, you know, along those lines, I've been thinking about starting a clinic about how to start a clinic in Indian Creek. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> A meta clinic? Yeah, just like, you know, if you guys want to start a clinic, like, first of all, you got to pick your size. You know, like, the off-with clinics are kind of blown out right now, so let's do finger crack clinic. Um, you know, it's just kind of how to just how to put it all together, I think, would be a good clinic for yeah. for a clinic on Indian Creek. So on, on your uh, – I, I guess you kind of are falling on the uh, – on the, um, the, the sort of a little bit sympathetic to our to – our, uh, our, dot commer is that right i am if his account is correct and Mm -hmm. the there is one person one bad egg on the trip who was the most important person on the trip and and couldn't didn't show up fit enough or capable enough to do the the climb i don't know it also confirms my initial uh skepticism about the decision making that that was lauded widely uh by the climbing world when they made that tough decision to bail because of the Serac. It all kind of seems to fit together in a way because the they were making such a big deal about this giant Serac and how this is this big tough decision to end the end the trip. And there's like the cynical part of me that feels like they were that was all just for show in a way. Yeah, um, I mean it's there. There's thousands of Seracs. Exactly, like the whole thing is Seraci. That's if you're going to Everest, don't expect to not climb under a Serac. Right. Um, it's just an irrational thing to uh, to expect. So, yeah, so it all is starting to make a little sense. And so I, I want as much as I would love to um, hate a Silicon Valley tech executive who's paying a ludicrous amount of money to climb Everest. Um, I, I feel like he should have they should have just given him his money back if this mm-hmm. if there was this sort of c- cynical thing thing that took place on this trip. Well, you can do both. I mean, you can side with this guy in this case and still hate him. Okay. So just feel, feel okay about that. But um, the, yeah, I mean, in, in, I think maybe that they're, you know, the worry is that, you know, there's some sort of precedent and that this will open all these guys. I mean, I think that's kind of the underlying worry, just reading the article, guys reading the articles, like, what does this do when we have to make these decisions? And um, and I think he's going to lose because I think that's the argument and that's going to be the argument is like, look, this is life and death and we can't set a precedent where guides are second guessing these decisions to keep their clients safe because they already do. I mean, as a guide, again, as someone who guided rock climbing and guided, you know, big routes and stuff like that, you are, you know, if you're marching into an objective that your client you know, is excited about, has paid money for and everything else, 
you are, I think, not making the same decisions, to be honest, that you made, that you would make for yourself. Like, I, I, you know, I want it to be successful. I'm pushing, yeah, let's go a little further, you know, let's, you know, let's go up and see, we'll do the first pitch. Like, shit that I would have just been like, nah, I'm going back to the coffee shop. Like, this doesn't look like the day. Keeping in mind that I could go back tomorrow, you know, or whatever. So I think that's going to be the argument is, look, you can't sit here and put pressure on on guides to second guess their safety decisions and um so i i I think he's gonna lose i don't think he's gonna win it but we'll see well it'll be interesting if in the courtroom is the the risk calculus is litigated to to whatever degree and they try to paint um i don't think that's going to happen necessarily but it would be an interesting courtroom to be in uh to to hear those arguments made they have a computer Serac simulator or something to show like (laughs) Well, and and that's that's I, I fall back on it the, that he's going to lose because no, they're not, and that the the guides the guide side of it, Garrett Madison has the preponderance of the fact that everybody, except for you and I, and and much of the climbing community, thinks of Everest as like you know every single step on it is some sort of life and death struggle. Um, he he's got that on his side. Whatever happens, you've got you've got the weight of you know a hundred years of everybody thinking that Everest is like the most death defying and awesome thing in the world. And you know if the judge is is like a you know a five twelve trad climber or a ice climber or something, then then Garrett's screwed. But right. otherwise, he's fine because the right. judge or whoever is going to be in this mindset of that every minute of every decision on Everest is life or death, and so. Zachary, if the Serac doesn't, if the Serac doesn't fit, you must acquit. <laughs> exactly. If the Serac doesn't cut. You must yeah, go but up. I mean, the real worry again is all goes back to this idea that this fucking industry, this stupid high altitude guiding industry, is a house of cards. It's built on mythology. It's built on the backs of underpaid labor in another part of. The, I mean, all the bad is in my opinion is associated with this world and so that's the fear is that if this crack if this little crack here Zachary Bookman like manages to pound a you know a, a knife blade into this crack it's just going to fucking fall apart because in a lot of ways it should and you know the mythology all surrounding it should i you know be exposed if you will but how will Uber executives live their, you know, live their dream? Um, whale riding is my next uh, extreme <laughs> sport that I think they're going to be interested in. It's going to, it's like a Moby Dick thing where you, <laughs> where you strap yourself to a whale and you just go like for an hour, you get to ride wherever the whale wants to go. And if the whale decides to dive to, you know, you know, 2000 feet below the ocean, Sorry, buddy. That's the Serac. That that's your risk calculation. Like you just hope that the whale doesn't go that deep, and your in your body implodes. Sign anyway, me up. Yeah, exactly. Run out whale riding expectations. Is yeah, LLC is is is. Uh, I already applied for it. We're good to go. So where can people go to sign up for our our Everest expedition <laughs> next spring? Patreon. <laughs> Got to be a rope gun to get on the trip. <laughs> It's a, we actually aren't going to put out bonus material. This is your bonus. You get a shot at coming on our expedition. 
for you could make it all the way to base camp you can make it all the way there you know we'll give you a pack of marlboros to, to to smoke with the with the sherpas and uh and we get to go home after that <laughs> Boone Speed is a sport climbing legend, a photographer, artist, and now a founder of Grasshopper, a manufacturer of adjustable climbing walls and holds. So I was just thinking about the first time we met, and I was wondering if you remembered that. I think it was in, at the Horseshoe Canyon Ranch with Dave Clifford and Nate and Chris and everybody. We had a blast. Yeah. And I recall that that was one of your first, you know, attempts at professional climbing photography. That was probably one of the first assignments that I had gotten. That was probably 2000 and 2004, 2005, right? I think we so. We did that Horseshoe Canyon Ranch thing. And um, I had been shooting since, you know, it started in the late 90s, really, with Pusher, but, but hadn't really done assignment work yet as a photographer as a photographer yeah Yeah. so um so yeah that's kind of when that started what i thought was interesting about that is because that that was i think maybe one of my first um assigned trips that i took for rock and ice and it was kind of an initial for foray into this immersive gonzo style journalism and just being part of the story and being out in the scene and meeting people and going climbing together. And, and, you know, I recall that that was, you know, you were, obviously I knew who you were cause you're this famous climber and so forth. And I just thought that was so cool. And we, it was the start of uh, many trips that we would subsequently go on together. Um, and for anyone who's, who's listening, who's interested in becoming a climbing writer or something like that, there's this, I think that one of the first pieces of advice I always give is just hitch your wagon to a photographer because you guys become like this team and you go out and tell stories because you need photos and and words together. And um, I don't know, I just at that time, you know, I didn't realize that there'd be so many cool trips together over the next decade. And um, yeah, I just wanted to publicly thank you for all those good good experiences because some of my my favorite things that I've gotten to write over the years have been illustrated by your photography. Thanks. Yeah. I I feel the same way. I I was looking through some photos yesterday, some older photos and we've done done a whole lot. I mean, there was Venezuela and Colimnos and starting with Horseshoe Canyon Ranch, Mallorca a couple of times. Exactly. So, yeah. When were you aware that Andrew Bishrat had attached himself had hitched himself to you was that something you guys talked about or were you just suddenly like god this guy is on this trip again like what's going on here well i mean it was it was a natural fit because we're both kind of uh i don't know we have a we have a similar sense of humor so and a similar take on things and and have always had just a, a really good time together i've always really enjoyed andrew's writing i think it's you know it's just that i don't know i, I really enjoy it and and uh uh, has a, it always has a point of view and i like that it's educated it's funny and uh you know it, it reminds me of the kind of literature the books that i like or the you know the writers from our generation which seem to be like even though i'm older than you guys it seems like david eggers and 
David Foster Wallace and those types of writers. I, I think Andrew has that sort of prose. High praise. Undeserved. Wow, yeah. Yeah. Uh, appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you, the thing is, is that, you know, you understand climbing, right? When, when you understand something and you just, when you're part of it, it's like, you like you can just give a better insight. You have, you can construct it, you can deconstruct it, you can do whatever you want with it. And, you know, if you've got the skills also, you're not, you, you know, it's like, you're not an imposter. You're not trying to do something that you're not familiar with, which is one of the reasons why, I mean, it's the, one of the reasons why I feel so comfortable in climbing and why I should have always been here, but it was, there was no, no place for me for, for a little bit because I needed to actually earn some money. And now, you know, I think there's, the sport's kind of grown up as well now with the Olympics and everything. So, well, you, I want to I want to talk about your return to the, the industry, if if we can call it that. But the, before we leave this subject, I wanted to just point out that um, a lot of the writing I was doing about sport climbing and bouldering, there was no real precedent for that in some senses because there was this idea. I recall this idea in the early 2000s and before that literature, climbing literature had to be of a mountaineering genre. There wasn't the depth of experience in bouldering and sport climbing simply was insufficient for um, any kind of deep look at, at what these the themes of these pursuits entail. Um, but that I, you know, that um, the ability for me to even dabble with that as a, as a focus was, I couldn't have done that without standing on the shoulders of what you and, uh, you know, the whole pusher crowd and other people in the nineties did with just making bouldering like a popular sport, because a lot of people don't recall that bouldering and sport climbing were the, you know, the bastard stepchildren of climbing for a long time. Climb all almost all of that, like you said, all that climbing literature and even literature and climbing photography that had really influenced me was in the, you know, I mean, from the Mark Twight era, the that punk rock sort of nihilistic, like you know, like suffering and 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 all of that, and and I think, I mean, when going back to when you and I started first hanging out, Andrew, I think what I'd done was I. You know, I'd been I'd been doing all this stuff for, for for Pusher and some some work for Blue Water, and it was it was my work for me by me for for purpose. It had a it all had a purpose, and you know, especially for Pusher, it had a it had a had a purpose, and and I knew it, and it, we knew what we needed, and it didn't exist, so we had to make it, and and then I went to Waco Tanks, and I think two thousand and four with with Chris Sharma and. I, we made best of the West with Mike Call, and basically through those photos, I remember Dwayne, Rock, and I saying, "These are the first bouldering photos that are worth publishing." <laughs> this is like 2004, and I remember a lot of the publications wouldn't even look at bouldering photos, and and sport climbing was only a few years in, in front of that in terms of like popularity, but it wasn't. But nobody had really caught on to what it felt like to just travel around the world and sport climb. And it's actually pretty fun. But as you and I know, Andrew, like the experience of just basically traveling around and whether you're surfing or, or sport climbing or taking photos of birds, you know, it's like, if you, if it's got a reason, if it's got a purpose, then the, then the story lies in that, 
in the culture and in what you're what's happening kind of it's just like ah, climbing 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 like whatever like and then i you know i didn't think i was going to do it and then i did it and then i took this big fall and then you know like whatever but it's like it's about the experience um it's about what it feels like to be there and that's what you were able to capture that hadn't been done before and in in that in that in that realm in that genre or that those that that part of the sport did i answer that right uh yes you passed the test (laughs) (laughs) but i'd like some more compliments please (laughs) where am i Uh, we don't really have a history together (laughs) you compliment yourself um, enough chris (laughs) that's true um i'll let you guys answer a couple questions about the the photography and sort of I think your style or the direction you went with. And to preface, you know, talking to our, uh, I'm sure all three of us mutual friend Corey Rich, you know, he, I think he kind of fell into this really cool place or figured out this, you know, the lifestyle shot. He didn't invent it, but it was a really big part of his photography where he, you know, says he started just shooting you know, people hanging around, not just climbing and not just the perfect shot, you know, via Greg Epperson of like, well composed and, you know, just the right clothing and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, that that I think is a hallmark of his influence. Um, one of the hallmarks I see of your influence, Boone, is is kind of moving it towards this more artistic uh, look that that kind of convenes around maybe even like some of the influence of fashion photography um, a lot of black and white, a lot of real stark use of light um, to create an image that says maybe a lot more than just, oh, this guy's or this girl's climbing really hard. Well, I was, you know, I grew up in the basically in the 80s and I was influenced by DIY, punk rock, Ray Gun Magazine, um, David Carson graphic design. I studied graphic design, Photo- fashion photography was a big was something that I was interested in, not not necessarily fashion from the standpoint of like, you know, Louis Vuitton or anything like that. But it was more like fashion in terms of like skateboard fashion. And like I say, the DIY punk rock stark imagery like you're talking about, the silhouettes, the emotive stuff, the stuff that didn't follow rules um, or that wasn't necessarily composed a certain way, but it made you feel something. I mean, it it all goes back to Pusher. Without owning that company and without needing something to needing a way to get our message across, I I might still just be a graphic designer or like a product designer for somebody, you know. And I still do all of those things. But I really got interested in in depicting how we felt, what we needed, what what it was like. And it was based on that, um, like I say, just skateboard sort mm-hmm. of skateboard fashion. So you know, it sounds like Pusher became an you know, this outlet for this vision that you had. And and I guess since you were so deeply involved in Pusher that you got to, that also means you got to decide what was put out to the public and your vision was put out to the public. Going back to what Andrew said about sport climbing, bouldering being, you know, this kind of shunned thing uh, in, in the years in the beginning, did you find that your, also your idea of, you know, what made a good image was, was hard to sell to sort of the greater media. Um, did you have any, you know, did they want the, just the basic shots like we talked about, or were you able to have inroads with, uh, with sort of greater media pretty easily as well? 
Well, I mean, I kind of backdoored it because I just made it for pusher and then it right. became a thing. I didn't have to sell it to anybody. So I know that, uh, you know, my black diamond mentor, Mariah approved of it. And, mm -hmm. you know, she had like exquisite taste MC approved of it. We got behind it. I mean, we were making something that felt, that felt right for what we were doing. I mean, I'm looking at a photo here right now on the, on the wall of an old pusher ad. And it was like, it was a Lomo camera that my ex-wife had given me because David Byrne had one, you know, and he loved it. And it was like this camera, this Russian camera that just read light and adjusted the shutter speed. So you get, you, you got these kind of blurred images and then we threw some, you know, some Agfa CTX film in it and cross-processed it. And, and there, and there you have it. It, it was right. Nobody was going to print a photograph of a plastic hold back then, <laughs> which is why we needed to make them. Part of my journey back was, was because, you know, because Jared, Jared Roth, um, resurrected pusher kind of from it had, it had gone on like a 10 year hiatus. You know, he, he brought back some of this stuff and he, and he brought me in and he, and we started talking about this stuff and it made me realize that, you know, I'd been raising a kid living in Portland, Oregon, and I've never not climbed, but I haven't really ever, I mean, I haven't been healthy as long as I've known Andrew for climbing and, um, you know, between elbow problems and shoulder problems. And I mean, remember in Kalimnos, I couldn't even friggin' climb anything but a top rope because my hand didn't work. I couldn't even feel my hand. It was numb. I, I looked back on all this work that we'd done at Pusher and I was like, fuck, that's, that's it. Like the reason that that work is, is good is because it, 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 it had a purpose. So, and I needed to figure out how I'm going to do this, man, I need a, a purpose again. And the only purpose I know is climbing. It's interesting. Um, I don't want to know if we need to get this deep, but you know, I'm, I feel like I'm in on a similar path of just sort of existential doubt at the moment, like very much came close to just quitting climbing and just doing some, you know, opening up a bakery or something. Um, this summer uh and yeah if, you know there, i don't know you can as your body changes and you the sport changes for you and i don't know what what's going on necessarily but i recall uh i recall seeing you know moments like that for you along the way boone where you know we would there's one moment in particular where we were had made plans to like go out cragging together i think at the, some at the whaling wall or something like that and uh <laughs> and yet you, you pulled over on the side of the highway and you're like, dude, I can't do this right now. I need to go do something else. And you just peaced out, like basically bailed on me on the, on, uh, on I-15. And I remember uh, that. Yeah. So, Oh my um, God. What's it's and it seems like you're stoked right now and you're doing, you're doing great. So maybe you could with go as deep as you want, but with this, but tell, what was the, what, what was the down? The, the lull in your in your climbing life and how are you the low or the lull well i what guess you, both. you know there there's a stretch where you, it, the sport wasn't you, i i'm not sure I, i'm i'm putting words in your mouth but it just seemed as though you know you weren't stoked and now you do seem stoked so what what where did that come from and and how did you get back into the into that well yeah man well, first of all, and you, you understand this, Chris, you have kids too, right? Yeah, yeah. One. Um, 
kids change everything, right? So when that happened, Andrew, I remember that. I remember that happening. We were all staying in Hurricane and my life was in shambles. At that moment, my life was in shambles. I was divorcing Nick's mom. I had decided that I wanted to be a professional photographer. And I mean, I, I was in triage in that in that moment in time. My life was in triage. And I I remember talking to Conrad Anchor and he said, There's some ice in. And I was like, I'm on my way. I'm I gotta make these photos. This is what this is the this is this is what I have to do to survive in this moment. This is the opportunity that I have to take. And the climbing, you know, I can't tell you how badly it sucks to be injured and just chronic. I was chronically injured for like 20 years. That just so happened that I was able to channel that energy into something creative. And like, there's no, (laughs) do I look like a man with a plan? (laughs) Like, I don't have a fucking plan. Um, I just kind of follow, follow my heart. And if I couldn't climb that day at the whaling wall, I couldn't do it the way I wanted to do it. And I had another opportunity that was actually moving me forward in that moment. I just had to take that opportunity. And uh, that's, that's what I had to do in that moment. And I, you know, I got some killer photos. <laughs> some iconic photos of, of, uh, uh, friggin Conrad on, on, in, on Epic ice. I mean, I had some really good opportunities and, you know, it's, it's always like you, like, you know, how it's good, how Andrew said that it's good to, uh, for a writer to hitch themselves to a photographer. It's also good for a photographer to hitch themselves to, and writers also to hitch themselves to capable athletes, good talent. I've been blessed with both. So you anyway. said you're, you're you're injured for 20 years, and I assume now you're doing better, or what, what's changed? Lots better, yeah. Um, you know, I've had chronic back problems since the late 90s, um, two, two, like, two-year bouts with elbow tendonitis that were spread over the course of like seven or eight years. I had that one in, in, nine, in 2009 when we were in Kalimnos and I was traveling nonstop, jugging ropes nonstop. My elbows didn't work. My hands were numb. Then, I mean, shoulder problems, intense pain. So it's like hard living. I think just, just hard living. And I think during the last several months, so Nick's off to college and all that, the, the kid, the kid is, the kid is hatched and out of the nest basically. And so, you know, Bailey and I decided to move back to Salt Lake and start this climbing company. And that's a whole different story, but, but basically being immersed in it, having access to climbing, having access to weights, having, you know, being on a yoga mat every single day and just, just, just working on my body. Um, it's, it's finally paid off and I feel good. It probably has to do with the fact that I haven't been traveling for six months. Not at all. Like I haven't been on a plane and, you know, just been doing work, taking care of myself, getting good night's sleep in my own bed and, um, and climbing every day again. So the takeaway is that I can expect to start climbing well again when my kids are in college. (laughs) 
Got it. Oh, great. So when I'm 64, I'm going to come on strong, baby. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah, man. Yeah. So it's not just like that, but kind of just like that for me. Yeah. Because I mean, I had to make, I had to do things to raise my kid too. You know, I had to make right. a living. My, my needs are pretty, pretty minimal. I, I never, I never thought I'd be back. I never thought I'd be back. You know, I thought I'd dabble in it. I'd take a trip here and there, meet up with Sharma someplace, or, you know, I always like to go to Mallorca and go climbing, but I never thought I'd feel like I had a chance again. So, and I'm headed to uh, the Virgin River Gorge tonight to climb Unnecessary Evil tomorrow. For people who don't know, that's um, the route that you bolted and... Uh, 30 years ago. 30 years ago. And um, Chris Sharma, of course, did the first ascent. It's probably had less than 20 ascents, I would imagine, in those 30 yeah. years. But it was one that kind of got away from you at the height of your professional career. I don't know how you would describe it back then. Yeah, I mean, it got away from me, but I do think I have a chance. I was on it a couple of weeks ago, and I, I, I give myself, I give myself a chance on it. So, we'll see. Talk is cheap. <laughs> Tell us about uh, Grasshopper. Yeah, the latest project. So through all this whole thing with, you know, going back and kind of revisiting the beginnings of my work and the climbing, the climbing work, which is shit that I know that, is, that I'm really good at, that I understand, I can construct it, deconstruct it, mess with it, stretch it, play with it. This is going to sound ridiculous, but I, I, I decided to start a company so that I could make cool images again, images that meant something. And the idea is really simple. I mean, the moon board is a great idea. And the thing that would make it better is to make it adjustable. At some point, the moon board had the option to do it at 40 degrees or 25 degrees or whatever it is. I don't, I don't know anymore. And it seemed like a good idea. And so we decided to build adjustable climbing walls. That was, that was three years ago. And it's turned out to be epically difficult and it's super complicated. The engineering is crazy. Um, these things are big, heavy, but honestly, they're, they're, they're for real. I'm a hundred percent convinced that in, you know, like right now we're kind of having the, the, it's the equivalent. I think of the mountain bike conversation between like, Oh, all I need is this hard tail. And uh, that's good for me. You know, I'll never get a full suspension mountain bike. And it's like the hardest sell right now is the climber the old school climber, like my friends. And I didn't build this company or design this, this stuff, or we didn't design this stuff. Jeremy Huckins is my, is my engineering partner. We didn't design this stuff to sell to my buddies, but I'm a hundred percent convinced that in five years, nobody's going to question whether or not adjustability is absolutely essential. I mean, being able to get specific and, and specific training at the specific angle that you want. And this is the tip of the iceberg, what we're doing right now. I mean, we've got projects in development that are really exciting. We're making adjustable climbing walls and we just announced a hold set. And we made the hold set because it was clear that on the feedback that we were getting, there was no people, people like this about one set and that about another set. And this, you know, but nobody had really stuck it. And 
you know, it's kind of like we just wanted to create like a desert island board, a desert like 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 a say use or a Red River Gorge of of boards. Like you just can't deny that this is fucking awesome. You know, the holds are ergonomic. It works at every angle. It's easy. It's hard. You can do animated routes. You can stay on it. You can do circuits. I'm super psyched for people if they want a tension board or a kilter board. Like that's great. Put it on an adjustable wall. You know, gyms should have five adjustable walls. And in fact, we're putting four adjustable walls in a gym called Threshold in, in Oklahoma City. And they're only putting obviously one of our hold sets up. And they're putting other hold sets and spray walls on the other four boards, but they get it. Like they understand that these adjustable boards are a thing of the, for the future. <laughs> no, I think, um, you know, the say use of, of uh, boards is, is, should be the new tagline for your company. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, the color, the, the color scheme of our board is sky blue, school bus yellow and jet black. And it, and it reminds you when it's, when that thing's brand new, when it's all mounted on plywood, like it looks like you just want to go climbing on it. It's so sick. Like our lights are, we put, we've, you know, found a way to put the lights in the center of the holds and, We've sold a lot of boards, like many, many, many dozens of boards, and we've de- delivered them around the world. And so we have a ton of feedback on on the user experience and the installation process and everything. And we're constantly refining that. Like today, if you if you order a board from us, you'll get it in a crate. It's bigger than you expect. Um, the crate is like the size of two coffins or bigger. And, it, you know, it's like... the You'll, it'll come to your house in a, with a lift gate truck and you'll dump the crate. It'll be anywhere from 700 to 2000 pounds worth of stuff. But actually, you know, putting it all together is relatively for the scale of this. It's relatively easy for someone like we have this one, one customer. She's super psyched. She's on the East coast and she, her gym closed for COVID and she was just like, I just need to climb. And she bought our wall, some of our holds, and she's got a climbing wall and she's like, can't be more psyched. Was there a point when you, uh, you know, embarked on this journey that you were like, <laughs> holy shit, this, this is too much. I, this we, we've, you know, we're sin- we're in a sinking ship right now. Like we can't possibly pull this thing off for like home users or whatnot. Honestly, it, you know, I'm not going to say that we're not overwhelmed and that we haven't been, or that we're more. That, we're, that we will be still overwhelmed. But we built the business model and the plan from a, a pre-mortem standpoint. And that is to like, what can go wrong will go wrong. And so it's like, I've never once, not one, not one minute doubted this decision. It's, I know we made the right decision. Things could still go wrong, you know, but we're in a growth phase now. We've gotten out of the startup phase and we're in a growth phase. We've had great, you know, like financial backing and the, our product is great. Our engineer is great. Our team is great. We, so we, you know, we share space with pusher. So we kind of have like this little family grasshopper pusher family here. And Mike calls part of the, part of the team. Bailey's our CEO. Um, and it's fun because like, like I'm the, I'm like the untethered balloon and she holds the string, you know, and then we've got uh, people like working, doing our fulfillment. And then we just brought on a sales guy, Brett Jessen and everyone in here, it's climbers. Like 
we're all we care about is climbing. So, and we spend a lot of time climbing and testing our products and then we work hard. It feels like, you know, we're, we've been talking about this return to climbing that, that you found and this purpose and, but it sounds like you found your way back into this, I guess, little community, this like uh, sort of climbing womb that you, you know, it, it almost like it felt like you left it when you got off out of the car, or you turned around on I-15, you were like, I'm done with this, you know, insular little climbing culture for now or whatever. But it sounds like you've found that again, like the perfect thing, your friends working with your friends and, and having this, uh, this common purpose and sort of integrating climbing into your entire life again. Yeah. All that's, all that's true. I mean, uh, it's funny. I grew up in Utah. I'm back in Utah. I never thought two, three years ago, I never thought I'd come back to Utah. I was a Portland guy. I can't be happier to be back. So yes, the whole thing. It's like, I don't know what happened. Maybe that peyote, Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, so a little wait, small reveal to the story. <laughs> uh, no, I mean honestly, honestly, it's it's just it's a matter of I I kind of explain the photography trajectory like this, mm-hmm. like like to be a professional photographer, it's like paddling out in big surf, and you're out actually just paddle, 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 and you're just taking wave after wave on the head, and you're just like sucking air, and like you never think you're going to get out, and then finally you get out, and you're like, okay. You know, and it's like, and I, and I did, I, I made a, I made a, I made a decent career out of, out of professional photography, but at some point, and I don't know what it was, but it was like, this isn't what I want to do anymore. Um, I don't, I'm not, this is not, I'm not doing this for me anymore and it's eating me alive. And so, uh, for some reason I got back into climbing and, and the journey's taken me all the way back here, but yes, I'm sad to admit that I took, you know, I took a lot of, I took a lot of this for granted. And, um, and I'm really happy to be back. Can't get enough of the runout, you say? Oh dear. Well, now there's a way to double your runout runtime. Become a Rope Gun by supporting us on Patreon, and you'll receive additional episodes and other content, such as Q&As, op-eds, and Ask Me Anythings. If you feel like your climbing media is getting too watered down and safe, you're not alone. We need more independent and original voices in climbing, because this is how we can keep the soul of our sport alive. That's our goal, and that's why we need your help. Please head over to patreon.com runoutpodcast and become a Rope Gun today. When it comes to running it out and taking a little bit of risk, if that makes you uncomfortable, if that fills you with fear, just tell yourself the following. You're not here to clip bolts and fiddle around with gear. You're here to send. You are a rope gun. Again, patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. On today's final bit, we feature our friend Christopher Parker. Chris is a climber, musician, husband, father, and perhaps last and least, content manager at Black Diamond. Chris has several recordings available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Amazon Music, including his climbing-inspired EP, Cliff Notes. But on today's show, he's here to shout out a bit of advice to you campfire crooners.
This is Christopher Parker, and I'm here to give you the beta on how to use three Dave Matthews songs at your next campfire session to seal the deal with that elusive climbing crush. Okay, here we go. After dinner winds down, the stars begin to shine, I suggest laying a solid foundation with a classic rendition of Satellite. Satellite in my eye Like a diamond in the sky How I wonder Satellite strong from the moon And the world on your balloon Peeping time for the mother station Alright, alright Now you've got their attention Play it cool, and as things start to loosen up and the libations flow, hit them with a little Jimmy thing. fire dies down and the night turns cold, it's time to lock it in. But before you crawl away to your 4x4 sprinter, ensure that you won't go it alone by busting out an encore of Crash Into Me. You got your ball, you got your chain. Tied to me, tie, tie me up again Who's got the claws in you, my friend? Deep in your heart, heart beat again Sweet like ending to my soul Sweet you rockin', sweet you roll Lost for you, I'm so So there you go. This little set has proven to work on both 90s nostalgic millennials and 90s wannabe Gen Zs. So happy camping, everybody. Nine planets around the sun. Only one does the sun embrace. And upon
You've just completed another episode of The Runout, a podcast from the sharp end of climbing. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and I run Evening Sends, the only climbing website on the internet. And I'm Chris Kalutz, host of the Enormacast, the only other climbing podcast on the internet. Please leave a review of our show on iTunes, share an episode with your friends, and follow us on social media. We should be fairly easy to find. Drop us a line. Let us know what you think. My email is andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And my email is chris at runoutpodcast.com. Mm-hmm.